Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. For our last show of 2021, we want to remember two people who died this year and listen again to our interviews with them. Later in the show, Joan Didion, she died December 23rd. She was 87. Of course, she wrote personal essays about California in the 60s and 70s and then about politics and history. But first, we want to remember Rennie Davis, who died on February 2nd at his home outside Boulder, Colorado. He was 80. That's coming up in a minute. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Rennie Davis was probably the New Left's most talented organizer, starting out as a community organizer in Chicago with SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, in the mid-60s. And then he became one of the leaders of the anti-war movement with the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam. In 1967, at the height of the Vietnam War, Rennie, along with Tom Hayden, became some of the first Americans to travel to Hanoi, They returned in time for the march on the Pentagon. Then they set out to organize a massive anti-war protest at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. He hoped for hundreds of thousands of protesters, but only 10 or 15,000 people showed up after Chicago's Mayor Daley made it clear that the Chicago police would do everything they could to stop the marchers. And indeed, what happened there was later called a police riot by the commission that investigated it. Those events were recalled in the 2020 film Trial of the Chicago 7, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. It's still playing on Netflix. Rennie and his friends criticized his portrayal in the film as a nerdy guy concerned mostly with not offending his girlfriend's conservative parents. He said, quote, I feel sorry for Tony Award winner Alex Sharp, who played me, but he nevertheless urged people to see the film because its theme was the value of protest and the necessity of speaking truth to power. In the trial, five of the defendants were convicted of inciting a riot and sentenced to five years in prison. The verdicts were overturned on appeal. After that, Rennie went on to organize a much bigger and more amazing anti-war protest, although it's much less well-known, the May Day protests in Washington, D.C. in 1971. The slogan was, Stop the War or We'll Stop the Government. After mass civil disobedience there, more than 12,000 people were arrested. It was the largest mass arrest in American history. After that, Rennie went in a puzzling direction. Briefly, he became a follower of an Indian boy guru. But for the last few years of his life, he worked on creating a network of intentional communities in response to climate change. I spoke with Rennie in October 2020 for a Nation magazine event. 
1969, one of the first things the Nixon administration did after he took office was to indict you and seven other people for conspiring to cross state lines to incite a riot at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August 1968. Did you conspire with Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Dave Dellinger, John Freund, Lee Weiner, and Bobby Seale to cross state lines to incite a riot at the DNC in Chicago in 68? Abby had a joke for everything. And his response to that was, we couldn't agree on lunch. (laughs) So... To give you a little context, so this was the law that was passed when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And, you know, 100 cities went up in riots. The, the Congress itself was surrounded by, by armed troops. I mean, it was, it was really, uh, it was a time when the lawmakers started to move into, well, it's the leaders, you know, they're the cause of everything. <laughs> so a, they passed a law And you you really need to understand that a riot was defined as an assembly of three or more people, one of whom violated or threatened to violate a law. And so if if you had used interstate commerce, you crossed the state line and you had the intention, what what had to do with what you wrote or what you said, okay, to incite a riot that might have happened, you know, three years after you spoke, but all it was was three people, one of whom had a clenched fist raised in the air. You could go to jail for five years. And we were charged with conspiracy to do this. That meant added another five years to our possible sentence. So what did you do about the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August 1968? I guess there wasn't really an issue about going, but, you know, I was the coordinator of a really the largest coalition of anti-war and civil rights organizations, not just of that time, but of all times in the country. You know, we had 150 national organizations in coalition. Martin Luther King was in our coalition. And, you know, I fully expected to bring 500,000 people to Chicago. Chicago at that time was holding its Democratic Convention and they were the prosecutor of this war in Vietnam. I mean, Mayor Daley was tough. I knew Mayor Daley. You know, I've been a community organizer in Chicago beforehand, but the idea that, you know, kind of the right to petition the government would just be thrown out the window by denying permits, basically. So we went anyway, and, uh, you know, uh, mostly our numbers obviously were reduced. It was mostly young people with a lot of courage. We knew kind of what we were going into. I mean, I had 4,000 marshals that were pretty, I mean, we were actually very well organized in this chaos. And we had 1,000 medics ready, and, but I don't think any of us were quite prepared. You know, when, when 11 o'clock came to the curfew in the park where we were staying, you know, the police assembled, tear gas was fired, and in they came clubbing and beating. And it, was, it, was, uh, it wasn't just that, we were beaten as demonstrators. I mean, newsmen that you would, everybody knew, you know, where they were represented CBS, the, the major networks. You know, I watched people sitting on their front porch, you know, just basically trying to see what was going on and get clubbed and beaten 
on their front porch, you know, people who lived in Chicago. And it was an event that uh, almost had no equal in terms of television ratings, you could say. You know, I mean, we were, we were watched by more people on television than watched the first man landing on the moon. And it shifted the entire opinion of the country about the Vietnam War. There was actually a Gallup poll taken two weeks before the convention that showed a majority of the country supported their government in a, in a war. And two weeks after that convention, the same Gallup poll showed a majority of the American people now supported our position to get out. Well, I'm especially interested in the way this story is told in the Aaron Sorkin film, partly because I wrote a book about the trial. It's called Conspiracy in the Streets, The Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago 7. In the book, I describe you as the new left's most talented organizer, I, I say you did most of the real organizing for the protests at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968, but somehow that's not in the movie. Aaron Sorkin portrays you as a kind of a nerdy guy worried that his girlfriend's parents will find out that he's a radical and an activist. I I think my account is more accurate than Aaron Sorkin's, don't you? Yeah, but like 100%. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know what to say, you know, I mean to maybe give him some some slack, you know. He I mean, he was 8 years old when the trial of the Chicago 7 was happening, you know, and he decided to basically that his own imagination would be the best drama. Uh, there was actually a Hollywood movie that was being planned during the trial. And uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman was playing my role. And he came to the courtroom pretty much every day, you know, and we spoke. And, you know, he was just very intent on understanding who we were and what we really thought and so forth. And while that film never got produced, it certainly suggested an intelligent way that anyone trying to make a, a story, a movie on this trial, you know, would have been better served really just to spend some time with us first and to really get to know what, it might seem hard to imagine that there's something more dramatic than your own imagination, but <laughs> the trial of the Chicago 8, which became 7, really was just, as a drama, was impeccable. Well, of course, the Aaron Sorkin film is mostly a courtroom drama. And in the film, the defendants decide that only one of you will testify in the trial, and you all pick Abby Hoffman. But in reality, there was a second defendant who testified, you. Your testimony, which, you know, is reprinted in this book of mine, took most of a week. It's still very powerful and moving. You talked about your trip to Vietnam in 1967. Tell us about that testimony that you provided in the courtroom that's missing from the Aaron Sorkin film. Well, it was our one opportunity that we had as defendants to actually speak to the jury about why we really actually came to Chicago. You know, I was the, the lead organizer and coordinator of the whole coalition that came. And so uh, on this particular trip to Vietnam, I mean, it's a real story. I mean, a woman came up to me and gave me a, just, it looks like about a, a tennis ball size. You know, it was an anti-personnel weapon. There were 640 of these little bomblets in, in a container. And basically this woman had lost every single person in her family because of this particular bomb. And she gave it to me. 
This was the kind of anti-personnel weapon that was dropped by American planes by the thousands, by the what, millions? Yeah, it was the it was the number one weapon used in North Vietnam. And, you know, our position as a country was that we were only uh, attacking steel and concrete. But this bomb, you know, I explained to the jury that if this bomb went off right now, everyone here would die. But this jury, the room would be intact. We could still have another trial on the, on the trial of the Vietnam War. The reason is, is that uh, it'll send, send pellets into the air. If one hits your leg, it would ricochet up your leg and you would die slow bleeding to death. This is the, you know, this was the horror. You know, I think one of the things, with, you know, it was the three days of testimony and the jury was just in rapt attention. I mean, it really was, you know, I mean, we, we, we had people on the jury who just wouldn't buy anything that we would say. But, you know, I think the judge was so upset because I was being effective with the jury that I received, I don't know, two months and two years and six months in contempt of court just for testifying, you know. So your attorneys tried to introduce an exhibit as evidence in the trial uh, after your testimony, the, this American anti-personnel bomb that you had brought back from Vietnam. And the government prosecutor, Thomas Foran, objected to introducing this as evidence on the grounds that, now I'm quoting here from the transcript, quote, the Vietnamese war has nothing to do with the charges brought in this indictment, close quote. Uh, how did Judge Hoffman rule on this objection? He ruled the same way he ruled on every single thing that the prosecutor proposed. Anything that came from the prosecutor was accepted. Anything that came from the defense in five and a half months was denied. You know, I'm not trying to toot my horn at all. You know, I was just, you know, I knew about Vietnam. I, I brought back American prisoners of war from North Vietnam. You know, actually, I'll tell you a story I've never really shared before. I was in a bomb shelter in North Vietnam where, where we were in utter blackness while we could hear American, you know, bombs going off in Hanoi. Okay, and basically they were trying to, you know, our Vietnamese hosts were trying to, you know, I guess entertain us or something. So they read news accounts, and and in that in the news accounts of one day, they they announced that uh, the Democratic Party was holding its convention in Chicago. And they said, "Oh, aren't you from Chicago?" <laughs> so so that's actually it was there that I learned about the the Democratic Convention, it was there that I made the decision, I am going to Chicago. Now, that would have been an interesting piece of drama in the film, in my opinion. Yeah. Of course, the emotional peak of the trial came when the judge ordered Bobby Seale bound and gagged for demanding the right to represent himself. That's portrayed very vividly in, in the movie. What was it like for you to be in the courtroom sitting next to a black man in chains with a gag in his mouth. This didn't just happen for an hour. This went on for three, two or three or more days. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it was four days, actually, that it proceeded. Each day got more intense. You know, the first day, he could speak through his gauze easily. I demand my constitutional right to represent myself. Then the jury would hear it. So the marshals each day 
were basically using greater force to put more gauze into his mouth. And he was just mind blowing, you know. But what, you know, it didn't matter what they did. He could still be heard by the jury. The important thing, honestly, John, is that, which is not mentioned in the movie, is he was also heard in Africa and Europe and South America and and Asia and Canada and everywhere in the United States. I mean, it was a global event. A black man chained and gagged in an American courtroom because he couldn't represent himself. Rennie Davis on this show in October 2020. He died on February 1st. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Joan Didion died December 23rd. She was 87. Of course, she became famous because of her groundbreaking essay collections Slouching Towards Bethlehem, published in 68, and The White Album in 1979, personal writing mostly about California. Later, she turned to political reporting, writing about the Civil War in El Salvador and Cuban emigre culture in Miami. They were published in two terrific books, Salvador and Miami. I spoke with her in October 2003 at KPFK in Los Angeles when her book about rethinking her family history in California, titled Where I Was From, had just been published. I opened by asking her to read from the end of the book. My father died in December of 1992. A few months later in March, I happened to drive my mother from Monterey to Berkeley, where we were were to spend a few nights at the Claremont Hotel, and I was to speak at a University of California Charter Day ceremony. Are we on the right road, my mother had asked again and again as we drove up 101. I had repeatedly assured her that we were, at last pointing out an overhead sign, 101 North. Then where did it all go, she had asked. She meant where did Gilroy go, where was the Milius Hotel, where could my father eat short ribs now? She meant, where did San Juan Batista go? Why was it no longer so sweetly remote as it had been on the day of my wedding there in 1964? She meant, where had San Benito and Santa Clara counties gone as she remembered them? The coastal hills north of Salinas, the cattle grazing, the familiar open vista that had been relentlessly replaced during the year, two years, three, the the blink of the eye during which she had been caring for my father by hill, by mile after mile of pastel subdivisions and labyrinthine exits and entrances to freeways that had not previously existed. For some miles she was silent. California had become, she said then, all San Jose. Joan Didion reading from her new book, Where I Was From. Uh, Joan Didion, you grew up in in Sacramento, and and in this book you, you express... A sense of loss that's that's similar to your mother's, in your case, the loss of the old Sacramento, but, but it's more complicated for you than it was for your mother. It's more complicated because what I lost was, I, th- I thought what I had lost was, 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 was old Sacramento. What I lost was, was, my, was an idea that, of an old Sacramento that, that really didn't, didn't ever exist. So I lost an enchantment. You know, I mean, I lost a, a sense of being... I had been, in a sense, hypnotized by, 
by by stories. <laughs> the stories that you tell in this book um, included the wonderful picture of yourself as an eighth grader. You knew you were a fifth-generation Californian. You lived in Sacramento, and you gave the eighth-grade graduation speech, which somehow you were able to to find. And, oh, and you know how I found how it. How did you find After it? After my mother died, I just brought back. I, I put all of her boxes of pictures and letters and stuff that in in a box and sent it to my apartment in New York. And when I finally started going through it, there there, there was this hand, hand handwritten in pencil on lined paper. Little, little speech, <laughs> and and tell us what the speech was was like, and how you uh, how you described the settlement of California as an eighth grader. It was it was it was it was a triumphalist uh, approach to the settlement. I mean, to the settlement, it was it was we had uh, I could, the lines I remember are uh, uh, we we had a water problem. We had a water problem, so we built the greatest dams the world has ever known. <laughs> we had. Uh, we had this, we had that, so we. It was all us, that we had done all of this. It, it total, I was totally blind to the fact that much of it had been, virtually all of it had been subsidized by the federal government because we were anti, we were anti the federal government in California. We were anti, anti the rest of the country in a way. I mean, and, and part of the, the story that... Uh that you repeated in your eighth grade graduation speech with the the story of the the settlement of California of the the route over the mountains, right? Which 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 is the, the basically the core. I mean, it's the origin myth of of California. Um, the idea that everybody had, everybody who bought into this, the idea was that you had go, undergone this this tremendously difficult. Uh, crossing. Uh, it, it had aspects of quest, uh, and you, you, you had arrived. Once, once you had made it, once you had arrived in the Sacramento Valley, you were redeemed. It was nobody ever asked. What, I mean, nobody ever took the next step and asked what you had been been redeemed for. Uh, the, the very fact of having made it um, was was somehow seen as redemptive. And the people who, who, who did make it were, to quote your eighth-grade graduation speech, the adventurous, the restless, yes, and, and the daring. And the daring. They, were not, they, were, they came west for, for adventure and money, I think, was, was, was one of my insights. <laughs> so uh, the target of your, your scrutiny in, in this book is what you call the preferred self-image of most Californians— and you emphasized that it was reliance on federal money rather than self-reliance that was so so crucial and and so easily uh, forgotten. But the book as a whole is not really an economic analysis or a political economy of California. It, it's really a book about how you stopped believing in, in the yes, old California. That's right. There were certain points that came to me quite late. Uh, I mean, I, I was not a quick study on this. For example, in the 1980s, I finally grasped that California was not deeply committed to maintaining its its education system. Um, that it, basically, it was not deeply committed to creating a future for however many people it was it was going to be. Which had the investment in the future aspect had been a was 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 a big part of the. Of, of 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 California's story about itself, 
and it had actually been borne out in the inve- in the investment in the university, uh, which had paid back handsomely with the amount of basic research that was then made available to business. It had worked, and yet there there was now this this tendency to think it was unnecessary. Yeah, you talk about um, Joan Irvine Smith, a person important to me since I teach history at UC Irvine. Tell our listeners about Joan Irvine Smith and why she's a, a significant figure in your, your story. This, this was a woman who had gone against the wishes of the rest of her family and had, had, had managed to, to prevail in, in a very acrimonious family situation to intensively develop their part of Orange County. And, and a, how, how much was their part of Orange I County? I think it was 88,000 acres. By the time she was 21, the the, the board that had preceded her, her uncles, uh, had, had been kind of selling off things piece by piece as they needed money. And she thought this was the wrong way to go, that it had to be developed as a piece, and it had to be developed with... with to ma- they had to maintain an interest in it. And to make this work, she offered land to the University of California because she was foresighted enough to know that a, that, a, that a University of California campus brings uh, all kinds of research, basic research around it. Uh, and she created this, this whole, she created Orange County as we know it today. In the 90s, it came to my attention, she had this, she'd built this little museum in um, Irvine where she hung her collection of California Impressionists. And I was reading a piece about her in Art in California in which she said, astonishingly, I love to look at those paintings because in them I can still see California. I can still see California as it was. Well, this is this is a woman who had famously made a decision to not to not see it as it was. <laughs> to end to yeah. end Southern Orange County as it was. Actually, this raised a lot of questions in my mind that I still haven't quite been able to answer. The basic one being, all of us want to see California as it was, right? But if we could still see California as it was, how many of us could afford to see it? Not 35 million. I mean, that's that's the basic conundrum here. We're speaking with Joan Didion about her new book, Where I Was From. I've seen the picture of the groundbreaking of the Irvine campus. It's Joan Irvine Smith, Clark Kerr, and President Johnson. <laughs> Those were the days. Yes. You know, there's a lot of uh, of this kind of uh, nostalgia also for the old University of California before there was affirmative action, before there were uh, people of color clamoring to get in. You went to the old uh, Berkeley. You were actually a sorority member, I believe. For, tri- for a couple of years, a, I a was. A tri-delt? Yes. Am I, yeah. am I right? I moved, I moved out after a year and a half. And, and you were a Republican in those I days? I was, yeah. Uh, what was it? Re- what was it like? What was it like being a Republican sorority girl? Let's say at Berkeley in the it, olden days. It was. Uh, I kind of slid slid away from that, um, from 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 the sorority girl part of it. Uh, but I certainly stayed a Republican until until after the. Uh, after the Goldwater campaign, because I because I I did vote for Goldwater. Being a Republican was something just something you did like uh, being being a, a, you know it was it was it it didn't mean a great deal. I think I think most of us had a sense that political action of any kind was futile. 
all, all of that changed dramatically in, within the next 10 years, but I graduated in 1956. It was cool jazz, you know. <laughs> cool jazz. Joan Didion's new book is Where I Was From. Uh, you wrote in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, here's a quote, The future always looks good in the Golden Land because no one remembers the past. You wrote that in 1968. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's 35 years ago. Do you think that's still true today? Well, we certainly saw it happen this fall, didn't I? I mean, <laughs> uh, with the recall, I mean, it's going to be a really interesting period to see. Uh, theoretically, a lot of a lot of this kind of cyclical anger that that hits the electorate in California. Um, theoretically, it got drained off, uh, but who knows? What is your understanding of the the recall and of uh, Governor-elect Schwarzenegger? He certainly didn't let us know during the campaign what who he was. Have you seen any of the Terminator movies? I have not, no, personally seen any just, of the just, Terminator. Just checking. <laughs> um, did you see in the paper this morning, He's he, after his trip to Sacramento, he said the people elected me because they want action, action, action. <laughs> we once, John and I once wrote a movie, once we're working on a movie this for... Is John Gregory Dunn, your yeah, husband. It was for an action uh, director and... Uh, he was. We were re, we, 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 our job was to rewrite an existing script, and, and so we were sitting with him, and he was he was telling us that he was on he was on the phone, but he kept talking to us simultaneously. And he says, he says the the, the topic at hand was what the script needed. He said, first act more whammies, second act more 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 whammies, third act all whammies. <laughs> And I think that I think I, I, that's that's all I could think of when I when I heard they they elected me because they wanted action action action. In this book, you sort of recover uh, Frank Norris's uh, great neglected book, The Octopus, written at the turn of the century. There's a line in there where somebody says, "California likes to be fooled." Do you think that applies this year? Yeah, I do. Um, the the line kept running through my mind all through the. The, the 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 astonishing events. Um, and were you surprised by the the passionate hatred of Gray Davis? I certainly was because I don't think he's someone a who inspires passionate hatred. B. It was hard to it was hard to say that that everything that that was wrong with California was was could be could have been remedied by Gray Davis. I, I mean, a lot of what was wrong with California was had to do with with. Things in the structure that, that that were totally outside his control. There were there were such there were such odd details. I mean, there, this thing about the quote unquote car tax. Yeah, we're all we're all insane about the car tax here. Well, I didn't even know what the car. I, after living here all those years, I had not not a clue what they were talking about until finally, it was explained to me that it was the vehicle registration fee. Well, you know, you send in X dollars for your tags every every year and the the way in which it had been raised this year was it had it brought it back to the same level that it had been at five years ago but suddenly by calling it the car tax it was like the death tax you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it was taking away it was taxing your very car it was tax taking away your mobility your freedom it was taking away what you as a californian deserved um i mean it was it, it was masterly 
I wanted to uh, ask what you thought about the Kevin Starr essay about you in this uh, this new book, Where I Was From. Kevin Starr, of course, is more or less the, the uh, official or semi-official historian of, of California. He had a piece in the L.A. Times where he talked about the, the what he called the disappointment about California that you express in your book. He said at the end of that piece that really that's uh, an expression of, quote, the Anglo-American surrender of dominance to non-Anglo immigrants who now constitute a majority of California's population. And he thought there was still a trace of the, what he called the Goldwater Republican attitude in your book. He said, well, you are, I'm quoting, longing for a better past. New immigrants from Mexico and Asia are, quote, struggling to make California work, close quote. I, well, I that's I, what, I, what I would would argue is 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 that I'm not actually talking about a past. I'm talking about a future. And I think unless we make an inve- an investment in the future, uh, those those immigrants uh, who 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 are who are looking came here looking for a better life are going to find themselves living in a third world country. California as a state has fallen away from its commitment to to the future. That would be the only argument I would. Good. I wonder if we could close by asking you to read uh, one more passage uh, about the history and implicitly the future of California. Yes. The California settlement had tended to attract drifters of loosely entrepreneurial inclination, the hunter-gatherers of the the frontier rather than its cultivators, and to reward most fully those who perceived most quickly that the richest claim of all lay not in the minefields but in Washington. It was a quartet of Sacramento shopkeepers, Charles Crocker, Leland Stanford, and Collis P. Huntington, and Mark Hopkins, who built the railroad that linked California with the world markets and opened the state to extensive settlement. But it was the citizens of the rest of the country who paid for it through a federal cash subsidy, $16,000 a mile in the valley and $48,000 a mile in the mountains, which were contractually defined as beginning six miles east of Sacramento plus a federal land grant, 10 or 20 checkerboarded square-mile sections for each mile of track laid. Nor did the role of the government stop with the construction of the railroad. The citizens of the rest of the country would also, in time, subsidize the crops the railroad carried, make possible the irrigation of millions of acres of essentially arid land, underwrite the rhythms of planting and not planting, and create, finally, a vast agricultural mechanism in a kind of market vacuum, quite remote from the normal necessity for measuring supply against demand and cost against return. As recently as 1993, 82,000 acres in California were still planted in alfalfa, a low-value crop requiring more water than was used in the households of all 30 million Californians. Almost a million and a half acres were planted in cotton, the state's second largest customer of wa- consumer of water, a crop subsidized directly by the federal government. 400,000 acres were planted in rice, the cultivation of which involves submerging the fields under six inches of water from mid-April until the August harvest, months during which in California no rain falls. The 1.6 million acre-feet of water this required an acre-foot being roughly 326,000 gallons, was made available, even in drought years, for what amounted to 
to a nominal subsidized price by the California State Water Project and the Central Valley Project, an agency of the federal government, which, through the Commodity Support Program of the Department of Agriculture, also subsidized the crop itself. Ninety percent of this California rice was glutinous medium-grain japonica, a type not popular in the United States but favored in both Japan and Korea, each of which banned the import of California rice. These are the kinds of contradictions on which Californians have tended to founder when they try to think about the place they come from. Joan Didion, in October 2003, she died on December 23rd. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.